The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today. We're in a mini-series called Learning How to Argue Like Jesus. So we've been going through this, learning how to argue about Jesus. Last week was learning how to argue politics like Jesus. And this week is learning how to argue theology and church things like Jesus. Because Jesus is going to get cornered by a group of religious people. Now I need to tell you, I did not grow up in the church. I did not grow up around church people. So I didn't understand how crazy church people could be until I became a church people. My very, very first staff meeting at my very, very first church where I very, very got saved I was on staff, and they brought me on to minister to junior high students. It was basically like a demonic control of middle school hormones. In my very first staff meeting, I was meeting with the big boy staff, not just the student team, but like the staff staff. And we are going to change the world for Jesus. I remember going to that staff meeting, and I rode my skateboard there. I actually took a big fall. It's a separate story. But I got to staff meeting, and this was like late 90s. I was literally there in cargo shorts because that's what you wore back then. If you're still wearing cargo shorts, see me. I'll help you out later on how to shop on Amazon. Um, And I get there, I'm like, this is it. This is where we're going to talk about how to feed the orphans and the the poor and to care for people, to adopt people. Oh, hold on, I got a special delivery. Just one piece of bacon. Just one piece. You guys are messing up my mojo because you know this is my kryptonite, my weakness. My record is 39 strips of bacon on one particular Sunday. I don't recommend that. This is literally, I'm in my teens, my high teens right now. Uh Uh-uh. Oh, take it to the back. It's for the next service. Go. I'm in the end of the service. Hold on. If you're hungry, I'm sorry. I'll pour the microwave. <laughs> Jesus said, take, rise up, and eat. It is good. And it is. Um, 39 strips of bacon is my record. Don't do it. I took a shower after I did that particular bacon fest Sunday many years back. And after I was all clean, I took a nap. And when I woke up, after taking a shower from my 39 strip bacon nap, every time I sat up and a crease in my body was sticky. Like gooey, bacon, sticky. And so from that point on, all of my life insurance premiums have been higher than they should be. Um, sidebar, back to my first staff meeting. I was ready to take over the world. I wasn't going to argue about the silly things that churches argue about. I didn't care that this church loved playing their haunted carnival music, a.k.a. the organ as their only form of music. And I sat down and I was excited because I was there. Our senior pastor, Barry Jones, was a British guy who grew up on Penny Lane with the Beatles, licked his lips all the time. I wanted to give him chapstick, but he never accepted it. We had the missions director, the secretaries, the pastor of care, the pastor of small groups, the pastor of men, and here I am, brand new interim junior high ministry pastor. First time on church staff, first time in my first staff meeting. And the very first thing we talk about is they unfold the bulletin, because we're not going to talk about how to conquer the world and take over and push back the darkness of hunger and orphans and people in need and people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. The very first thing that was brought up was a bulletin for a Valentine's Day dinner they were having. This was back when they, before they had photos, they had clip art. And in this particular clip art was a picture of a a black clip art person with a white clip art person. And the very first point brought up in my very first staff meeting, my very first church was, we can't have a mixed race clip art because it will offend people. In the 90s, in California, I know how some of you feel about California already, but I'm just letting you know that's where we were and when it was. And in my very first staff meeting, were we going to fight all the darkness in the world and kick Satan in the mouth in Jesus' name? I was so fired up. All of a sudden, I began to stew. Because I'm from, uh, I'm, I'm half Asian, half white. My brother's half black, half white. We are a melting pot, my family. But no one else knew that. It was a bunch of people sitting around. Instead of talking about Jesus, we're talking about clip art of a couple that appears to be in clip art 
fashion, a different ethnic background, I began pressurizing myself like a bad kombucha or an instant pot gone wrong, just boiling. Now, I have to admit, ahead of time, um, I've, in 20 years, I've seen a lot of church arguments. In, in 20 years, I've, I've probably been the cause of a lot of church arguments. But in 20 years, to the credit that God has given me, the mouth that I have, I've also ended many church arguments. But that was my first one of many, many, many. I've been in arguments with people wearing three-piece suits talking about whether or not guitars and drums can honor the Lord. I've been in arguments of people in suits in official board meetings where minutes are kept talking about whether it can be cran grape juice or it has to be pure grape juice for communion. I said wine. That didn't go over. I've been in arguments where youth pastors got scolded for serving Snickers and Mountain Dew for communion instead of bread and wine. Now, I do draw a little bit of a line there. I was on the anti-Snickers and Mountain Dew. I think it just doesn't connect enough in my own brain. I've been in arguments where I've seen pastors take swipes at other pastors going to fisticuffs because of pews or budgets or opinions about a particular doctrine, when Jesus is going to come or not come again, how the world works as far as what the church should focus on. I've seen every argument that I could have never imagined in my time working at churches. Today I want to teach us all how to argue, and these principles are going to be good for arguing in general, but really to how to argue against and with and alongside spiritual people. So we're going to read in Mark chapter 12. Hopefully you flipped or scrolled there by now. Verse 18, it's going to be on the screen behind me if you're not, but I encourage you to do it. Once again, show me who has, who's got a paper Bible. These are like rare animals. I just want to see how many people love Jesus more than the rest of you guys. Okay, um, we're good. All of us super saints are going to do this. Now, the caveat, I usually preach from my iPad anyway, so don't feel bad, um, but go download a good app. We're going to read, then we're going to pray, then we're going to keep on pressing into this idea of how to argue with religious people because nobody in this world knows how to argue like a good old religious person. And the Sadducees came to him, a different political faction. Here's their stick, who say there is no resurrection. That's important. These, this group does not believe in the resurrection. They are materialists. They believe in what they can see, touch, smell, taste. They asked him a question. This is a, referring to an old Jewish law. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died and left no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman, last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now this is the trap. These people do not believe in a resurrection, and they're trying to trap Jesus about something they don't even believe in. Every time you get into an argument, I need you to understand, I need us to understand that traps are being set. The point of an argument in our culture is to win. And we all are in love with our own sense of how right we can be. So we're going to pray this morning for the religious spiritual traps that will try to creep in so that we can argue like Jesus, and we'll see how he did it in just a moment. Father, you know, Lord, I, I love a good argument. I don't know why you made me the way that you did. Um, Lord, I'm thankful that you've purged out of my mind some of the ways I used to argue. I ask now for this text, for this morning, Father, that you would teach us how to argue like Jesus. That you would teach us that it's not about how right we can be, but that we can point to the right person. That you would teach us, Lord, that it's not about how much we can win in an argument, but how much we can point to you who won on the cross for all time. Lord, sharpen our minds this morning. Give us the ability to think critically and deeply about our lives, to take a stock in our own lives if we want to argue like Jesus, what that will take for us. 
Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you give us these examples of these arguments so that we can learn and grow. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, the, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus knows it because Jesus knows them. And here's what he says. Man, if you're the son of God, this must be so refreshing to answer this way. Sorry, I've had a lot of bacon and a little coffee, so I'm feeling really good. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's the key verse in the text this morning. You're wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels don't get married. They're single. So they're single. They're bachelors to the rapture. That's it. Some of you are grateful for that verse. You're thinking, I don't like my spouse. I don't want to be with them. Well, good luck. Look forward to heaven. If you like your spouse, it could be a bad news verse, but I think you'll love them more in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus tells him, you are quite wrong. Just a sidebar. Um, you can say this in Jesus' culture because people debated with sanity. If you tell someone you're wrong in our culture, it does not work the same way. It's like telling a teenager they're wrong, right? You say, you are wrong, but it doesn't matter. In a 16-year-old's brain, they are the offspring love child of Socrates, Albert Einstein, and Sigmund Freud, the good parts, not the creepy sexual parts. Every teenager I've ever known, including this one, is a, a product of pure genius, and it's not until they get into their 20s they realize how dumb they were and they go repent to their mother. I'm sorry, Mom, I love you. That was a personal apology to my mother back there. Jesus knows three things we learn in that. First of all, he, he's saying if you want to be able to talk with people like Sadducees, like religious trap people that are going to try to consume you with some religious argument, cran, grape, or grape, end times, this end times, that end times, is God sovereign over all things? Do we have free will? All these things that church people argue about. You've got to know three things. Two of them are very obvious in that key verse. He says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And what he implies as he talks to the Sadducees when he says, you are wrong, he knows their arguments. He already knows his opponent. So today, when, we, when we're thinking about how to argue theology or really anything like Jesus, I need us to break it down into those categories. You have to know who you're talking to. You have to know the scriptures, the story of God, and you have to know the power of God. So I, I want to walk through those things really quickly. So first, um, everyone here loves stories. It's just a fact of life. You either love your own story or some other story. That's the reason we love movies, shows, etc. The story of God mirrors the story of every single individual in this room, and I need us to learn how to listen. Learn how to listen. Uh, wives, if you're here with your husband or girlfriends with your boyfriend, if he does not to listen, just give him a gentle nudge right now, okay? Just nudge him. Say, listen up, chump, okay? I felt that spiritual nudge from you, baby. That's my wife. Here's how you listen to somebody, and here's how I listen to all of you, because I'm a, I'm a creepy listener. If you haven't figured this out yet, I eavesdrop all the time. If I could get paid for eavesdropping, I would be a multi-multi-millionaire because I do it a lot. I've been eavesdropping since I was a child, and unfortunately, God made me huge, so I can't sneak up on anybody. But if you ever see me like this, if you're over here talking with somebody, and you just see me like walk over and just go like this, and there's no one in front of me, I'm not praying. I'm eavesdropping on you, okay? 
Um, and sometimes I just eavesdrop right in front of you. But, but it's important that we learn to listen. That's how Jesus knew the Sadducees, because he had spent time listening to them. And if you want to know how to argue like Jesus, not arguing to win, but arguing to win them over toward the love of God, you have to learn to listen to people. And here's the one lens. It's a lens that I use, and I pray that maybe it will work for some of you. And it's a lens of the story of God. Here's how you listen to people. There's, there's four components to the whole story of God. Are you ready to learn them all? Some of you know this. First one is creation. What is it? Creation. This is where we get our identity from. The second one's the fall. What is it? Fall. That's when everything broke in the Bible. In the creation, everything was great. Adam and Eve, children of God, running around naked, having sex, eating fruit, great. And then they didn't listen, and they broke the relationship with each other and God. That's what we call sin, and it entered in. That's when things went wrong. The, when, when sin came in, that's why bills are frustrating. That's why falling and breaking your arm hurts. That's why childbirth looks miserable, I've heard. I can't confirm. I'm still on the fence on whether or not it's equal to man pain. I'm just saying, I've seen men with a man cold. That looks horrendous. Okay? That's the fall. Everything that's wrong, your broken relationships, your financial woes, your physical pain, your diseases, it roots and finds its root in the fact that relationship with God and humans was broken. Redemption is the third part of the story of God. It's the thing that saves us from the fall, the thing that saves us from these temporary pictures of hell in our lives. And then restoration is what the perfect world looks like. Now, these are very bible words. These are the words in the junk drawer of church. But if you want to think about them in the sense of how everyone is within this same story arc, I need you to understand that we all live in a creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We, all of us here, have some identity that we cling to. Actually, we have many identities. If you listen to someone, you'll, they'll say, oh, I'm a dad. Or if you're getting together and meeting someone, one of the first questions that people ask in our culture is, hey, what do you do for a living? Because we derive our identity based on what we do as a vocation, not on who we are or whose we are. We all have many, many identities. For me, I'm a son of God, I'm a father, I'm a pastor. And then we have, all of us, have something that's broken in our world, the fall. The Bible only has two chapters in the beginning before everything goes awry. And all of us have a few chapters of life when somebody's feeding us, wiping us, cleaning us, and then life begins to go awry. And in our fall, what is, what is your personal hell? And here's what I eavesdrop for. I, I always listen. I want to hear what, they, what this person is saying they are. Who do they see themselves as either before God or outside of God? And then I want to listen to what people complain about because what you complain about is what's broken in your life. And think about your own or think about someone you know. What do the people around you complain about? Oh, finances are tough. Oh, I can't stand this person or that person. Oh, my church is this. Oh, I can't believe this. My job is the worst. My boss is a, a demon spot. Ah, complain, complain, complain. Politics, money, relationships, disease, sickness. That's the hell that they're living in. Everyone has that. Whether you're a Christian or not, a follower of Jesus, a spiritual religious person or not, we, we all follow this pattern. And then every one of us looks for a redemption thing. And it's usually not Jesus. Usually, if, our if it's financial problems that are our hell, we're looking for something to get us out of that. We think, man, when the mega millions is 500,000, if I win that, all my financial problems will just be done and over with. That's actually not true because I've known very, very rich people. If you win $500 million, you just got 500 million more problems. But we think that it will solve our problems. Some of us think that if you're like me, here's one of my identities. I'm heading into my, like, I'm, I'm deep into my middle age. Like, for a tall guy, I'm for sure middle age because you rarely see tall people past 75. Like, our heart just ticks the last talk earlier on, okay? So I'm past that. I'm past my half-life for a 76-year-old now. I'm just, I'm moving in. But I've got this thing now where, like, 
Like, I'm, I'm tall, six foot six, in case you can't tell from down there. Uh, I'm six foot six, and I think, man, I, sh- I just want to be in good shape. Like, I don't want to go into my 40s and just rolling in deep and just, like, the dad bod, I knew it was a fad, but it's not a fad that my wife likes. That's my personal hell that I'm living in. Okay, broke my wheel, my Achilles tendon healing, can't jog yet. In my mind, I think I should be in good shape. My thing is, I'm not in good enough shape for me. What's my redemption? What am I looking for to save me? Here's what I want. I just need to work out and do something. Even though I can't jog, can't jump, can't play any sports right now, i got to figure out what I'm going to do so I can get in good shape. Because my perfect world, my restoration, is the world where I have like a hybrid body of like David Beckham, Adam Maroon, and a little bit of Thor, okay? And that's not for me. That's just because I've watched my wife watching movies. And I'm like, I get it. I see, I see that now. So, I, I mean, I'm getting super close. You have to admit that you could tell probably that I'm just trying to relocate a love handle to a chest handle. It's not working like I planned. But, but in my mind, if I can get this perfect world by working out, it will save me from this hell of not feeling as good as I want to feel. But unfortunately, one of my other identity things is that I love eating bacon, and I just literally have pounded in the high teen numbers of strips of bacon today. So two of my identities are fighting against each other. Now, if you think about your lives, and this is what I do with all of you, and it's so fun. The ones of you that I know more, um, people that I spend more time with, I love that I, I formulate these stories in my mind of your life, and I look at it through, like, I have just lists. And if the longer I've known you, the more I, I have lists for your identity statements and lists for the things that you complain about and that are broken in your world and lists for the things that you are turning to, just like me, to try to solve these little mini hells so that you can be the person you want to be and live in the perfect world you want to have. And some people, it's like creepy, like, like Jared, who's up here with the big beard, the hillbilly metrosexual guy. Um, I've just got lists for days on Jared. There's a list for days. My mother, I can't even bring up her list because I've known her my whole life. And I'm like, and I've, I'm like I can't even bring up her list, but I got a big old list going for you. My wife is just perfect. When I think of her identity, it's an angel falling in here and beautiful. And when I think of her problems in the world, her problem is that she married so far down the scale of attractiveness to get me. And in her perfect world, I look like the love child of Thor, Adam Levine, and David Beckham. And that's our perfect world covered in bacon sauce. But we all have these things. Whether it's to be uh, intelligent, attractive, successful, have finances, have great healthy relationships, have kids that grow up. Whatever those things are, we all have them. And if you can learn like Jesus did to listen to people, to actually listen, to slow down your mouth, to hear. And to love someone deeply enough to say, I I care enough about your story that I want to know. I want to know what it is you're turning to that you think will satisfy you. And and see if if there's a better way in Jesus. Because the truth and reality is is that all of our story arcs, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, they are all subplots of the main story of human history, which is God's story. Creation that we are God's creation and God's children loved by him, created to be in perfect relationship with him and with one another. But something went very, very wrong. We mistrusted God's word, and we've been doing it ever since, and it snapped and fractured our relationship with God and with ourselves and with each other. And the true redemption isn't one that solves our temporary problems, but one where Jesus goes and dies on the cross and says, all of these things that have been shattered and broken and marred and stained, I'm taking it all upon myself so that you can once again be made perfect, and you can find escape from the hells of this world in little small pockets, and one day you will find yourself in my kingdom where there is no more hells, there is no more pain, there is no more financial loss and worry, there is no more anxiety, there is no more anger and rage and abuse. It's all been finally put to rest. 
And our sub-story, our mini-plots, our mini-stories fit under this grand cosmic story, and they mirror it. And every single one of us has an identity that we're living in right now, that we're looking to something to save us right now, and we all have an idea of what our perfect world looks like. And Jesus is one of the answers, I believe the answer, that can satisfy all of these longings within us. All of the small hells that are just reflections of the big hell that's looming. Jesus is not a temporary solution. He's a permanent solution to our eternal problems. And Jesus knows the Sadducees. Do you know the people that you're going to talk to? Do you know them well enough? The Lord gave me an opportunity to practice how well I know somebody in arguing yesterday. We had our band of brothers on Saturday morning. I love it. We just read the Bible, talk about the Bible. And this person, this person didn't know that I'd spent this week preparing how to argue theology like Jesus. And this person who's going to remain nameless, it's Eric Young, the elder who is up here. Um, we get into this argument about theology, about the sovereignty of God. How in control is God and how free, how free is the will of humans? And it's like God was just telling me like, oh, you studied all week? Let's see how you do. Toss that one up. Tee it up, Tarona. And I hit it right into the sinful, pride-filled park. Because I did what is so easy for humans to do. When the Lord made me, this is how God made me. He said, I'm going to create a creature, tall and beautiful, with the body of Thorne, Adam Levine, and David Beckham. And then I'm going to give him a mouth that moves too fast for his brain to shut the trap gate. That's my curse. There are times, I don't know if this is you, but it's me, where I'm arguing, and I'm just going into this logical, reason-oriented flow of destruction of the other person's argument. And all of a sudden, in my brain, my brain goes, you are actually wrong right now. But my mouth goes, just start talking faster, use bigger words, and get louder. And in my brain, it says, if you do this long enough, they might believe you. So my mouth says, challenge accepted. And it just goes. This is my curse. And yesterday as we were getting into this argument because we love each other, we were just going back and forth. Well, this is this and this is that. But I had already done all the preparation. So I, I did what I'm going to encourage you guys to do. I, I said, scripture. I need scripture. You give me scripture. I got scripture. Do you got scripture? I've been preparing all week for this moment. I'm going to bury you in the grave of debate. Now, that's the wrong attitude to take because Jesus didn't argue to bury people. He argued to bury himself and raise other people up. Jesus didn't argue to win a mental exercise. He argued to win them over to the truth. I failed yesterday. I don't know if Eric failed. He probably left a holier man than I, even though Jesus' blood covered me as well. But that second part, and I kept hammering Eric, and I, I led him down some trails. I'm not going to lie. I definitely manipulated the conversation because I've had it a, a hundred times or more. I knew right where I was going. I knew all the scriptures that are already in my brain. But what didn't happen was that there was no charity. That's the power of God. That's at the end. What we, we, do, what we did do is love and talk about scriptures, I think. I think. Do we love each other at the end of that? Do you love me today? Okay. It's not good to lie to your pastor in church. <laughs> okay. Jesus knows his people. He says, this is why you're wrong, because I know you. I've listened to you. I understand your arguments. You're wrong. And then he says, the other thing is you do not know the scriptures. I do not know how to communicate this. I, I literally can't. Um, other than, I, I love this book. I love it. And the only way that I can tell you, like, I'm I want to convince you, but I just can't. 
I want you to love this book because in this book, these are the words of God in story formats. He created and crafted all these stories, had them preserved for us so that we could read stories about God's interactions with humans and human interaction with one another, and we can learn and grow from it. And it points to one person. It points to Jesus. And that's why I love it because Jesus loved me so much. He said, hey, I left you a book. Now, I was not in high school a reader. I read what were known as Cliff Notes, now known as Spark Notes. Apparently, everything's online now. You can read synopsis of books online. Every single book report I did in high school was reading the little black and yellow striped cheat sheets. And then I got gripped up by Jesus, and he left me books, 66 books, collections of poems and letters. And he said, this is where I put all my word that I have for you to learn about me. And in case you're wondering, this is not a book about a bunch of amazing people. You're, you're thinking, well, I, I'm glad that you read the book. You're a pastor. You're supposed to. Actually, no, we are the church. This is God's. If, if someone that you love asks you to do something, you might read it. If, maybe you're not even a reader. Maybe you're like me, and your philosophy in high school was D's, get degrees, okay? Use that for your kids. And someone says, hey, I got a book for you. If you're not a reader and you like them, okay, you'd be like, yeah, maybe I'll read it. And you might read one page and be like, what a snooze fest. But if, what if someone saves your life, like literally saves your life, like Mack trucks come in and they're like, look out, uh-uh, and they shove you out of the way, tackle you down, and it's like a scene right out of a rom-com movie. And you're like, you saved my life. And they say, yes, I did. And the only reason I had the courage to do so was because of this Tony Robbins book, Finding the Power Within. Do you want to read it? You'd be like, if it's changed you and made you this brave, this amazing, this incredible, I want to read that. You'd be more likely to read that book. Someone that saved you or someone that loves you if they recommend something to you. The reason why I love the Bible is because the person that wrote it recommended it to me. The person that loved me and died for me recommended it to me. And, and I, I've just been addicted to it ever since. Addicted. I, if you don't know how to read the Bible, I, I put some things up here. First of all, Get the YouVersion Bible app if you have a smartphone. If you don't have a smartphone, get a smartphone because it's a free Bible app, and you can get every translation under the sun. And if you're not a reader, it will read the Bible to you out loud. And if you have trouble sleeping like I do sometimes, you go to the ESV version, the Book of Leviticus audio Bible. That guy will put you to sleep before chapter one is over because whoever they get to read the Bible is a terrible person. What is on there? Oh, that's on my screen back there, Corey. There's like a guy eating a bag of chips on my screen. Oh, that's Thor. Eating. I love you so deeply right now. Oh, that's you, Phelan? May the Lord smite you with a thousand smites. You shouldn't do that. I've got a microphone and you've got a girlfriend. So, I'm just kidding. Next one, a Bible, like an old-fashioned Bible. I don't know how to get rid of Bibles. I've struggled many times. So multiple times, usually when I get up to 20 or 30 Bibles, I couldn't give them away. People are like, we've got plenty of Bibles, got plenty of Bibles. So what I started doing was I started getting all my Bibles that I was ready to get rid of, and I'd put them in a watertight container, duct tape it up, and I'd go out into the wilderness of California. It's like a canyon, and bury it somewhere. And soon, very soon, I'm going to take one and I'm going to bury one in the palmetto so that somewhere in the future someone finds it. And my hope is that at that point there's been some apocalyptic war, Bibles are scarce, persecution is rampant, and they're going to find one of my tubs of Bibles and it's going to be their only copies of Scripture because then they'll have all my notes, which are the most correctest ones. I, I wish that you would see Jesus and the love that he has for us to leave us this in a story format, this, this Bible full of broken people. 
It's Bible full of people just like you and me. The Bible, there's no such thing as Bible heroes. There's only Bible zeros except for one. I know that we say that, and back there they're lying to the kids all the time. Like, here's a Bible hero. Abraham, Father Abraham, had many sons, and then he pimped out his wife to not get beat up. Oh, King David, great faith. King David, relying on God. King David, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart who literally had sex with more people than any of us will probably have sex with in our lives. King David, whose big story that he's famous for is killing a giant. The next story he's famous for is sleeping with another guy's wife and murdering the husband to cover up. That's a winner. We're not hiring him on this church staff. Oh, yeah, that's the Old Testament guys. The other guys in the New Testament, they're a little bit more of the winner types. Oh, really? Like Judas, who lived with Jesus for three years and then betrayed him with a kiss? Or are you talking like Peter, the guy who says, Lord, I will never, ever deny you. Three days later. Or are we talking like Doubting Thomas? Seeing Jesus, walking with Jesus, rolling with Jesus, eating with Jesus, then all of a sudden Jesus dies, comes back to life, and Thomas says, no, no i got to touch it, and Jesus says, fine. Go, feel, right here, go. The Bible is a book of broken people like you and me, people who doubt, people who have fears, people who have their identity in something else, a fisherman, a worker, a father, a a not father, an addict, a non-addict, a superior religious person, someone who's covered in shame. We all have so many identities and we all have so many broken things in our falls that we're trying to find. These are little pieces of hell lodged into our lives and we're all looking to something to save us from those things. And the only way to know the story of God is to get into the scriptures. The Bible says to hide the word of God in your heart. That's Psalm 119. 11. Hide the word in your heart so that you may not sin against him. Take God's word and plant it into your heart. Remember it. Memorize it. Some of you are like, I'm not good at memorizing things. Oh yeah? I bet you can remember something. Ready? Every husband in here, tell me what your anniversary is right now. Go. I just like to see how many guys panic. <laughs> I like, my favorite thing when I give husbands homework in the middle of a sermon is that you see some husbands just go like triple chin. And the wife is looking at them with, like, eyes of laser breath, just like, if you don't know this, this is not your father's day. I love that. But some people got it right. Matt, you just jumped right on that. When's your wife's birthday? When's your kids' birthdays? What's your favorite thing about your wife? No, just kidding. Let's not do that. Let's not do that on Father's Day. Here's the thing. We can all remember something, but it's got to be something that interests us. Some people say, I don't have a good memory, but we remember every trivial sports thing under the sun. Some people say, oh, my memory is just garbage. Here's a tip on how to memorize something. If you want to memorize a Bible verse, so here's the thing. Pick something that you just struggle with and go online and say, what's a verse about dealing with anger? Find a Bible verse and say it out loud ten times while reading it. Like get your eyeballs on it and read it ten times. And then try to say it ten times without looking at it. And if you need to, do the little cheat peek. It's the easiest way to remember things. And I found that somebody from the, the most intelligent genius of all to someone whose intelligence was like mine, just D's get degrees, that's how we're going to get through school, that if you do that enough times in a day, you'll remember that verse, at least for that one day. The Bible is sharper than the two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow. The Bible will cut you open and show you the truth about you and about others. The word of God is breathed out by God, profitable. It's profitable. It's good for teaching, rebu- rebuke, correction, reproof. The Bible was created and given for you. It was sustained and carried down through history for you. If you want to talk about the validity of the Bible or if there's errors in the Bible, you can come at me. We'll do that another day. But this book has changed my life more than any other. And we're all addicted to stories. And the Bible is just another story, the cosmic story, that points to all other stories. The reason why you like movies that you like, by the way, is because they've copied the pattern of the Bible. I don't know if you knew that or not. 
creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But they've done it the Bible's way. What's your identity? Little tiny hobbit with big feet. I don't do much. Never left my hometown. What happens? Uh Uh-oh, there's a ring of darkness and power. It's going to cover the land unless something happens. Who's going to save us? Oh, the most unlikely character you'd never expect. It wasn't the, the dwarf. It wasn't Gimli, the son of Gloin. No, it wasn't Legolas, the elvish prince. It wasn't Strider slash Aragon, the king of men. It wasn't Boromir, the stand-in for the king of men. It was a little unlikely character who no one thought could do it, and he went into Mount Doom and plunged the ring in, and evil was vanquished. Sorry, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, you don't deserve it. Because there was another unlikely character that came in, someone that no one else expected, and he's the one that vanquished evil in a way that no one expected him to vanquish it. He died in a cross instead of going up to a throne. He said, I'm going to give my life for all. I'm not going to take all the lives so I could stand here and triumph in power. I'm going to give my life so that I can adopt people in. And I'm going to bring people to the true kingdom of God, which is one based on love, forgiveness, and my mercy, not their performance. That's why these movies that we see, they're all shadows of this. Every movie that I watch, I'm looking through this lens of what's the identity of the characters? What's broken in their world? What are they turning to to save them? And what does their perfect world look like? Because it helps me listen to you and to myself better. It helps me to see my sin better. If you struggle with anxiety like I do from time to time, all of a sudden I don't just say, man, I'm struggling with anxiety. I say, wait a second, why am I being anxious? Because my identity is that I should be in control and in charge and able to make enough money. My problem is that I don't have enough right now, and we need to get this and buy that, and this bill just came in. My redemption is that I'm trusting in like a paycheck or something to make me a less anxious person. Oh, here's what I need to do. Turn away from this false Savior to the true Savior. Will Jesus ever let me down? Has Jesus proven time and time and time again that he cares for me? Does he tell me in his word that he owns all things and and he owns me and I'm his? Does he tell me that he owns the cattle on every hill, on, uh, on every part of this globe, on every continent? Does he not tell me that he's a creator and sustainer of all life, that not a bird falls from a branch without him knowing outside of his care? Of course, God says he's watching every sparrow. Of course he's watching me. I'm his boy. In case you don't know, I'm God's favorite son. And so are you or daughter. What I did was I replaced my little miniature savior with the true savior. And what I did was that that savior then comes back over here and reminds me, I don't have to worry about these things. Because my primary identity is not someone who can control and earn everything. My primary identity is that I'm a child of God, loved by God the Father, who provides all things in the right time and the right way for me to grow and love him more. And he's done it enough times to where I should just say, I trust you. Because your perfect world is coming. If you want to know the scriptures, you got to be in them. If you don't know how to read the Bible, don't know where to start, I rarely, rarely, rarely recommend like para-ministry things, but I love this website, thebibleproject.com. Write it down in your bulletin, Google it on your phone, bookmark it, save it. It is videos that will take you through every book of the Bible in a way that I think is brilliant. It'll show you, here's why this book was written, here's how it was written, here's the pieces and components of it. Uh, a year ago, we did a sermon through every book of the Bible, one sermon per book, and I showed the video each week. I posted it online. They also have videos about themes like sin or angels and demons and who is God and what about the end times, and they do an amazing job. One of the few ministries where I watch everything and read everything and listen to everything they do, and I think, I love these guys. Can I get an amen, Matt? Yeah. If you want to learn, if you want to grow, start there, get your face in the book, memorize it. And here's just a bonus. The more in, in Christ you are with someone, the more that seeing the Bible in them is like super attractive. This morning's Father's Day. I've had bacon today. My kids all told me they love me today so far. When I woke up this morning, my wife rolled over and she was doing something on her phone, and I, I didn't know, I feel like Instagram or Facebook or something, I was getting ready as I was coming out, she goes, hey, 
I just woke up and I felt like memorizing this verse. And I was like, hey, girl, I don't got time for that kind of foreplay talk, okay? But I'll tell you what, like, I guess maybe that's not all of you guys, but that's how pastors flirt and pastors' wives. Like, my wife be like, I memorized a verse. And I'm like, did you, girl? I memorized a song. Let's go. Body of Thor and David Beckham. <laughs> We're all trying to find our own happiness, you guys. But if you're not listening to the story and if you're not rooting your story in your knowledge of Scripture, if you're not memorizing it, meditating on it, thinking on it, applying it, living in it, we're just going to be like spiritual consumers that just eat the Bible here on Sunday and go out and do nothing. And that's where the third part comes in. Some people can know Scriptures and not know the power of God. If you want to know the power of God, you have to live and do what God has called you to do. Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Part of knowing God, living for God, is you got to know who the people are. Know the story of God. And then you have to go live and do what God has called you to do. God's power is only accessible primarily when you're on mission for him. God's power isn't going to show up like if you're some monk doing some chant on some mountain. God wants you and empowers you to go out and share the good news with others. He doesn't empower us to go out and argue with others. He doesn't empower us to go out and spread hate and anger toward others. He empowers us to go out and share the good news. You will receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Our job is not to win and defeat everyone in every logical argument. Our job is to go out and say, this is the news of what Jesus has done for me and for you. And then you leave it on their plate. You leave it in their court. Theological arguments, they usually end with just people getting mad at each other. The Bible even says another part, Paul says, do not give yourself over to these little quarrelsome arguments about these things. Because Paul knew how divisive they were. Every, every so often, we, we joke a lot at the chapel if you're new. Um, but one of the things that I, I always joke about, people say, like, why do you joke about denominations so much? Like, why are you poking fun at Baptists? Mostly because my father-in-law was a Baptist pastor, and so is Edwin, our student pastor, and I think it's just funny. What if, why do you poke at all these people? Because here's the deal. Like, the reason denominations exist is because Christians suck sometimes. And as they say in Presbyterian churches, where two or three are gathered, there a new denomination is forming. Because we like to argue about things that don't matter. We just want to find our way. We want our way to be the most correct way of all the ways when the correct way of all the ways is that we would be good news people and be witnesses of God and know God's story above all else. So it doesn't matter whether you're Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian-ish, Mishta, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, whatever, whatever edestal, pedestal, Erian you are. Know the story of God and live it out. It's a very simple thing, this Christian life. Look around, learn people. Learn how their story connects to God's story. And then go do what God calls you to do. It's really easy. You can just ask someone, hey, can I, how can I pray for you today? That can change a whole person's attitude towards you. And you may think, well, they, maybe they hate prayers for themselves. Maybe they do, but more likely than not, they'll just say no thank you if they don't. Every once in a while, you run into an atheist that throws a coffee at you. But that's no big deal either. That's treasures in heaven. Soak up that caffeine in your skin. But what I want us to do is to just apply what we know. One of my fears as a pastor is that I keep teaching things, and if we learn things and don't apply them, we're just going to get spiritually wobbly on our feet. We're going to get spiritually fatigued from eating too much. We all know far more than we apply. For example, I know where the verses about not being a glutton before I started this morning. Like, there are tons of verses in the Bible about turning to food for comfort instead of turning to God. And yet, 
I told myself today, I'm not going to eat more than 10 pieces of bacon. And here's what my mind does, slippery and sinful. Well, some of the pieces I had were broken off a little bit. So I'm just going to get a few pieces to substitute for those broken off pieces. We all do that with the whole can of Pringles. Spiritually or physically, you take that as you need it. Let's learn to see our own lives through this identity lens. And remember what our primary identity is as a child of God, loved by God, died for by the Son of God. And remember our primary issue that we have in our life isn't just money, relationships, love, acceptance, significance, achievement. Our primary issue is that we have a broken union between us and God and between us and others. And the true redeemer of all these things is Jesus Christ alone. No matter of money, no health of relationship, no spouse, no friend, no child will ever satisfy you and fill you in the way that you are to be filled by the love of God and Jesus Christ. And the perfect world is heaven where there will be no more cancer, pain, death, brokenness, heartbreak, financial need, loss, worry, anxiety, whatever. When we learn to see life through this lens, we will become the most efficient arguers of all time. And by arguers, I mean people who can talk in a compelling way so that others will want to listen to the good news that Jesus died for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the bacon that is awaiting me. And Lord, I know that seems so trivial, but you told us in Acts 11 that you made all foods clean. And today we say amen and yes, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the Father's Day, God. I thank you that, I thank you that you are our ultimate father. Lord, that when I needed a father, that you are my father. Teach, teach us, Lord, what it means to be a good father today. Teach us, Lord, what it means to, to love and debate and argue like your son did with grace and kindness, pointing to him and not to them, pointing to ultimate truth and not to these lowercase t truths. Help us, God, to be a type of people who ooze the love of Jesus in all of our conversations. Help us, God, to be obsessed with your Bible, to long to memorize it. Lord, whatever it takes for, for this church to be a Bible-obsessed, Bible-saturated, Bible-loving church, do that in this place. And then, Lord, let us live for you so we can see your power unfold. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen.